Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 71 of the Speaking Club podcast. I heard yesterday that the Oxford English Dictionary people have decided to replace a word that's been around since the 14th century with one that's been around for less than five years. Going forward, the word farce has been replaced by the word Brexit. The dictionary now reads Brexit a comic, dramatic work using buffoonery and horseplay and typically including crude characterization and ludicrously improbable situations. Welcome to the Speaking Club Podcast, because making them laugh is the secret sauce to your speaking, pitching, and business success. And now your host, Sarah Archer. Hey, hey, and welcome to the show. It's number 71. I'm absolutely chuffed to have Jesse Brizendine on the show today. Not only does he have a story to tell that touches and transforms people's lives, but on top of that, he's started a global movement. He's a celebrity coach and a fantastic speaker. As you'll hear, Jesse is a positive and optimistic guy who's on a mission to touch 2 billion lives. But he wasn't always like that, though. And in this show, he's sharing how losing his best friend and father in quick succession tore his life apart and how he managed to get it back on track and better than ever before. There is gold sprinkled throughout this podcast for helping you manage life, loss, achieve your goals and become a great speaker. But before we cut over to the interview, I wanted to remind you about my new show, StoryLab Marketing. It's a show for business owners, coaches and consultants who want to get some help with using stories and humour in their marketing to connect more deeply with their customers. I'll be sharing what's working in our company, including the simple marketing system we've created to marry the best of the old ways with the new just search for StoryLed Marketing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, etc. Or head over to storyledmarketing.co.uk slash podcast. Okay, let's start the interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Jesse Brizentine. Thank you, sir, for having me. You're more than welcome. I'm really looking forward to, to talking to you and, and sort of hearing about your journey and everything that you've done. It's, I think it's going to be an inspiring uh, story to share with people. So you have been on a journey. Can you tell me you know, what happened to start you on the path that you, you've been on to where you are today? Yeah, you know, the first one that was kind of the real big, fork in the road moment for me was the end of my first real relationship that was like the the first broken heart and I never knew that you could feel pain like that and I realized that I really was on the crossroads where I had two choices I could either continue on as I had always had and I knew somewhere intuitively that I'd probably end up back where I was just somewhere down the road or I could really dig in deep and look within and figure out what was it about this that I was feeling that really had to do with me. Because the relationship, the irony was, is the relationship wasn't a great relationship. We argued all the time. We fought all the time. And when I'd have my really honest moments of reflection, I knew that it was probably the best thing. But I so desperately wanted my Band-Aid back, the Band-Aid that would cover up my own pain that I hadn't dealt with. And... I knew that if I went down that path, as scary and as hard as it may be, it would probably lead to something much more promising down the road. And so you, when you just mentioned that the pain that you were covering up, what, what pain was that that you had that you were sort of dealing with by, you know, through this relationship in a sense? Yeah, Sarah, I think all of us have, you know, some sort of internal stuff whether that's baggage or luggage or rubbish or whatever we want to call it, we all have our stuff. And most of us aren't even aware of our stuff, stuff that happens in our childhood, stuff that happens as teens and young adults and and associations we form to things and how we start to see the world because of our experiences and our perceptions we build from those experiences. For me, it it was really confronting those two great fears that I think all of us share, the fear of not being enough and the fear of not being lovable. I had struggled with that in many ways, shapes, or forms most of my young life because I grew up in a very 
financially strapped family where the lack of money was the focus of much of our life. I was the kid who would carry the rent up three weeks late because my parents decided to, the kid took the rent up, the landlords would be less inclined to evict us. You know, so I learned very quickly to walk, do the walk of shame, so to speak, with your head bowed and not having enough money. And, and I saw how that would affect my parents. My, my parents would, my mom would be very vocal about how money had ruined the relationship and how, you know, sorts of things. So when I was young, I started to associate the lack of money to being the conflict with my parents. And furthermore, I, I attributed myself as being the divide because I worked it out in my mind that they had to spend their extra money on me. And that if I wasn't around, then maybe I wouldn't, they wouldn't have these problems. They wouldn't have this pain. So when I was eight years old, I actually tried to take my own life. And because I had worked it out that it was, if I did that, then my parents could be happy. So I had all these things that had been buried and suppressed down inside of me. And then I have the, this person in my life who, even though it wasn't a happy or joyful relationship, even though we fought like cats and dogs over the stupidest things, she would say that she loved me. And so then if she loved me because she said those words, it made me enough, it made me lovable. And it, it was the band-aid that covered up all the wounds that I had never tended to myself. Gosh. And I, I mean, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, that's something new that you've told me there in terms of your 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 story that I hadn't been expecting. So so you had all of this going on, but as I understand it, you you managed to get your life to a good place. Is, is that right? And then something else happened. Yeah, I I I kind of worked through that. I I it took me on this very introspective journey, and I, I stumbled into this area where I was I was kind of acting as a a dear John for a while for for where it started out for guys to write in and talk about their relationship stories and struggles and advise them. And it turned into men and women would write in. And I, for a while I had people from all over the world writing in, sharing their stories. And I was writing them back and supporting them anonymously. And it really got my, it really dipped my toes into the coaching world. Was that, how, how was that happening? Was it on a website or in a paper or how, how was that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Sarah, what happened was, is when I was going through that heartbreak, I was in the, I was Googling around, YouTubing, trying to find resources for, you know, what a guy should do. And there's a lot of information for women and a lot of things about feelings, but most of the stuff for guys was still the traditional, you know, me man, me supposed to be no feeling, me supposed to go drink more and, you know, jump in bed with somebody else. That's how me man deal with things like that. And I didn't feel that way. I, I had, I had that nothing even close to that. I was crying my eyes out. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. It, you know, I had this very emotional experience, which at the time, most of the language would attribute that to being a feminine or a female experience, but it wasn't. It was, it was a, a masculine male experience too, but it, there just wasn't language behind it. So I, I, not knowing how to make a website, found a tutorial how to put together this website. And what it was is it just became this portal for people to share their stories and I had no idea how people would find her if they would. And it was really beautiful because the very first person who came across that site, they sent me this email and I'll never forget it. I didn't tell anybody but one friend I had done this. And this person wrote in and said that they had this relationship when they were in high school, had split apart 20 years or so had gone by. They came back together and they had this great love story. Something happened. They came apart again. And he was so kind of consumed by his emotions. He had tried therapy, psych psychiatry, medication, everything. And he said, just couldn't get anything to make sense for him. And he had made plans to take his life. And then for some reason, you know, divine intervention, whatever it was, he came across my site and was reading my story. And he said it was the first time he felt like there was someone out there that got it. And he said, you know, I just want you to know that you sharing your story, it not only made a difference, but it literally saved my life. Fast forward about Two years later, I get another email from him. He had since found someone else. They were in a relationship, and they were three or four months pregnant with their first child. And I learned from that, Sarah, how important it is to share our stories because it's often in our stories that our humanity is discovered. And it's in our humanity that we can really form these bonds, connections, bridge gaps, bridge continents, whatever the case may be, and find that 
part that where we're just all these human beings having these emotional experiences, trying to sort it out and figure out what the heck to do with all this yeah. stuff we're feeling. <laughs> wow. So, so, so basically that was you dipping your toe into to coaching and, and so that did that take off? Things were going well and uh, you know, along fine. And then, and then what happened after that? Yeah, so things were going really well. I, I felt like I was just on this complete other extreme of life where I was doing great in career. I had an awesome group of friends I was around. I was happy. And then on June 15th, almost June 15th, 2009, one of my closest friends, he took his own life. And I found him when he was still alive. Went through that whole mess of trying to perform CPR, waiting for the paramedics to come. And he had shot himself. They took him to the hospital, and three or four hours later, they announced that he was brain dead and that they would remove him from life support the next couple of days. So there's this loss that I had never experienced before with that. And it's such a, it was such a violent one that it was almost like not only was it this first significant death, but it was also this kind of loss of innocence because at that point, I had never, I had never experienced loss or pain like that. And it, it just, it was something that it put this rift, not only in me personally, but in my life with my friends, career relationships, the, the lady I was dating at the time, she couldn't handle me being, sad so she her and I parted ways and I really found myself in this place of struggling I started to find my way out of it and then just after that my dad died unexpectedly and my dad was on this other end of the spectrum where he had been through a, a multi-year bout with colon cancer fought for more time fought for more time did the chemo radiation all the treatment everything goes in for his checkup looks at the doctor and I shakes his hand doctor says congratulations Mike you beat cancer you have your whole life in front of you, you've earned more time. And then two weeks later, my dad drops dead. And it was this interesting spectrum, Sarah, to be on where on one hand, I have my friend Gabe, who time was the enemy for him. And the idea of living and experiencing more time, feeling like he was feeling was just too much to bear. And then on this other end, you have my father who had this illness, who was fighting for more time, who desperately wanted to add more seconds, more minutes, more hours to his life to be able to really appreciate and embrace the things that he had begun to realize in the face of his mortality were, were the most meaningful and mattered the most to him. And then Gabe takes his time away. And then my dad almost has his time taken away from him after it being promised to him. And so those two experiences, I, it sent me in kind of this tailspin where I just found myself struggling I, struggling to find my smile, struggling to see the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, they teach us all these things in school, right? History, how to do math, how to understand symbolism in some book, but they don't teach you anything about when life really comes and hits you hard and how are you supposed to handle and heal and deal with, with the losses that whether they're expected or unexpected, you know, what are, what are the tools that you have for that? And you realize that, when you face them, the world has really kind of left you naked and unprepared for it. And so then there you are scrambling, trying to make sense of it. But sometimes the sense that you make is from well-intentioned people who say, well, yeah, God, it sucks. And it, it could take, it takes time. There's no timeline. It, you could feel this way indefinitely. And for someone who's desperately wanting to find a way out of that pain and doesn't want to sit any longer, about the worst thing you can tell someone is to say, yeah, well, you can feel like this forever. Because it takes you know, what, away the control, what? doesn't it? It means that you don't have any power over it. Yeah, yeah. It means you don't have any power over it. It's like, it's like you just got cast out into a hurricane and you're in a rowboat without your, without your paddles and your sails broken. And then somebody's saying, well... The hurricane's never going to subside, and not only that, but it's a Category 4 right now. It could surge up to a 5 and down to a 4 the whole time, and that's going to be your life. Right. No thank you. Yeah. And so right. when you were in the depths of, uh, of this sort of spiral, what was the, the thought that you were having about yourself and your life that, you know, because obviously these awful things had happened to you. And I guess there was still pain, maybe a bit of unresolved pain about the loss of that first relationship. I don't know. But it, what was it? What did you make their losses mean about you in your life that, that sort of kept you there? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of guilt 
first, uh, the guilt was the driving force. I think also because there was so much guilt for my friend, there was the guilt that I should have known. I should have been able to do more for my dad. There was the guilt of, I should have maximized the time while we have, you know, there's so many things I never said to my dad or didn't do with my dad because I had my stuff. My dad had his stuff. So there's guilt. And what I've later learned to put language to is oftentimes after loss, we'll use, we'll use guilt and pain as placeholders for love. Because when we lose someone, it's not just the physical loss that we mourn, but we mourn the loss of connection. And we, we have this fear of them being forgotten. So we use pain, guilt as ways to quantify our love. We use them as placeholders for connection, right? As long as I pinch myself, even though it hurts, I'm still feeling something. I feel connected to something. And we just, cause we haven't learned how to, we haven't learned how to connect to them in the other way. And I was keeping this pain as a constant prevalence in my life, as a penance that I felt I needed to pay for what I, what I was perceiving as I should or should not have done. You know, how many of us have should have, would have, could have after losses. And it was, it was such a dark, desolate place because all I would find was more pain. I mean, I, I can remember there was one night that I would be, I was in the garage with some friends and we were playing ping pong and, and somebody had told a joke, we were laughing, and then I just broke down crying. Just broke down crying uncontrollably because it was just, it was just, it was just there. And I didn't know how to get out of it. I can, I can completely relate to that. So it's, it's like a, a way of punishing yourself. Like I, I, I have my grandma, and it's not the same as, at all as your situation. But I remember my, my grandma passed and I'd made a choice that day to go and see a friend rather than visit her in hospital and yeah. uh, which meant that she was alone when she died. And I, and I, I understand what you're, you know, that, I mean, it, it's still, I can still feel it, you know, that guilt, you know, so how did you, how did you get, get out of it? How did you pull yourself out of that hole? What was the epiphany that you had that you needed to do something? Yeah. And I, my heart goes out to you for your grandma and I, I can, and I can so, I can so appreciate that. And just a note, sometimes we'll, I think when we talk about loss, we'll try to, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to, we, we have this thing that we do sometimes where we don't want to make one loss seem more or less significant, but the pain you felt around your grandma, the language you'd use, it's the same language as I'd use, mm-hmm. right? Losses, when we compare them on paper, we say, oh, well, which one's more or less? It doesn't matter. The emotional experience is the emotional experience. And I just want to share that for anybody who's, who's listening to this right now. There's no need to compare your losses to mine and Sarah's and say yours is more or less significant. What's important to acknowledge is the emotion that you felt was the emotion that we felt too. We may have expressed it or experienced it in different ways, but we're all emotional beings having these emotional experiences. And when we deal with loss, they are the most radically intense emotional experiences we'll probably have in our lifetimes. And so what pulled me out of it was in the midst of kind of this all-consuming pain there is also this little voice that would sometimes whisper and sometimes loudly knock. I just wasn't a very astute answerer of it. And it would say something to the effect of, you know, dad, Gabe, they wouldn't want you to be like this. They wouldn't want you to live this way. You know, they wouldn't want you to sit around crying all day. They wouldn't want you to lie in bed. They wouldn't want you to give up. They would want you to do, they'd want you to be happy. They'd want you to be who you can be, be who you're meant to be, you know, step into that version of yourself that they loved and cherished about you. And it was really through that, that I started to pull myself out of it and acknowledge it and, and realize that, gosh, you know, that, that, that voice is right. And so what I started attributed to is it wasn't even my voice, but it was there. It was them that were loudly knocking and saying, Hey, like, we may not physically be here, but we can still have a presence in your life if you get over, you know, your your penance that you're paying. It was like I was just selling myself out an unlimited amount of lashes that was never going to end. And in doing so, I wasn't able to even connect to them and let them guide me. I really believe that our loved ones can be our greatest guiding light. They can be our north star through our darkest times and our greatest and brightest times after they're gone. But we have to get past our own pain and connect to a place of love to allow them to be that light. It's almost like getting up, you know, in terms of, you know, the way I feel, the way you feel, that sort of punishing yourself is, is almost, in some senses, it's, it's not, it's kind of selfish because we're making that death about us. 
yes. and not about them. And, yes. and, and you know, and and so that's that's quite interesting what what, what you said. So what what was the outcome of of hearing that voice and and moving forward? What did you do next? Yeah, I was I was with a couple friends and we came up with this idea of and we were, we were actually going to a a pizza place that's a popular pizza chain and I I don't know do you have do you have Dave and Buster's in the UK? No, David. Okay. What's it called, David? David Buster's. It's like a pizza video game kind of place. Oh, no. I don't think so. No. So it's a big it's a big chain I think in the in mostly in the US and I I realized when we were going to it I'd never been to one before and I thought gosh I've never been to Dave and Buster's before I wonder what else I've never done and we had this conversation about trying to do something a hundred new things and then do more new things you never done and I said you know what would be really cool is if I challenge myself to do a thousand new things I've never done before in one year and they went no there's no way that's too many blah 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 and, I, and as soon as they said that I said I need to do it because of that and and the idea was to do mostly simple everyday things so it wasn't like you know you had to do this bucket list thing but it was really about coming up with ways to intentionally get myself outside of this, this inner world of pain and suffering I had created and force myself to go and do and experience new things, essentially go and experience life in ways I hadn't before. And the reason it was a thousand is because it was a number so big that I'd have to work for it. And I had to do, I had a couple basic ground rules. I had to do at least one new thing every day. So you had to average at least one new thing every, well, you had to do at least one new thing every day. So for 365 days, Obviously, you have to average close to two to three to hit a thousand, and they had to be things too that were unique. So it couldn't be something like, well, just because Sarah and I have never been to, uh, you know, no, and had never been to Dave and Buster's before, that doesn't count. It have to be something unique, like a piece of history in a new area or a local, getting familiar with the local culture or something like that. And what ended up transpiring from that was. And I had two really goals with this was to find my happiness and honor of Gabe and dad, but I want to also inspire others to do the same. And I wanted to have as many of them be zero to no cost as possible because I didn't want it to be like, Oh, you know, you have to spend a bunch of money to do this. So I think they averaged out to about $2 and 70 cents or something over the course of the entire year, excluding travel costs, which most of the travel costs were paid with like air miles and those types of things like that. And it was really what transpired with it was it was this amazing experience of really getting to know myself in a way I never had before, but also understanding the concept of being intentional with happiness. You, you hit the nail on the head that oftentimes when we suffer, it's such a selfish endeavor because we're so focused on ourselves, and the loss becomes more about us and the person that when we actually get outside of that and start to connect with what we really want and what really matters most to us, it becomes this wonderful exploratory experience of what happiness is for you. You know, there's a lot of things I did that I found I didn't like. There's a lot of things I did that I didn't think I'd like, I really did like. And there were things that I had no idea would happen that ended up being some of the most precious and most treasured experiences of that whole event for me. Wow, and I've had a look at the list and you're right, there's some small things but there's some big mm -hmm. things. And uh, ha first, how did you come up with the things? I mean, you told me there's some ground rules and, and how long did it take you to put that list together? Yeah, what I did was as soon as I got back from that in conversation with those friends, <clears throat> which was in the summertime, I sent an email out to all of my friends and family and told them I wanted to do this. And I did that because I knew it would keep me from chickening out. And so I asked them for suggestions because then I felt that if they were putting in time and effort to give me suggestions, I couldn't wuss out on it, which as soon as I sent it out, I thought, oh my God, no way. And then really two, three days into the year, I thought, this is stupid. I need to not do this. This is too much. It's overwhelming. And then the thing that got me to keep doing it was, well, all these people put in the energy to give me these suggestions. Oh, cool. If I hadn't had that, I would have totally quit on myself. So it's so important that if you have a goal, get other people around you to help hold you accountable, get them involved, because most of us will give up on ourselves way sooner than we'll give up on anybody else. That's a, good, that's a good nugget there. So people, you'll give up on yourself before you give up on other people. I love that. Yeah, 100%. And I think we all can reference our, some points in our lives and say, yeah, that's probably pretty true. <laughs> <laughs> No, 
but it is but true. You, yeah. You've got people. I think I had a guy on on the show. He he rode across the Atlantic, and and he was thinking about the people that had supported him and helped him get there. That kept him going. You're yeah. so right. Yeah. Like, I can totally see somebody. You know, that image just popped in my mind of somebody out in the middle of the ocean, and you have your own voice, and you're cold, you're miserable, you're all these things. When you're focusing on that, you're defeated. But if you see the people on either end of the shore who are rooting for you, who believe in you, you're focusing on those faces, you will row towards those faces, right? We will, we will do extraordinary things for other people often way sooner than we'll do extraordinary things for ourselves. And that was, you know, that was really what got me going with it was, first of all, getting the suggestions from other people and then really focusing on other people. And then that got me through the initial, you know, first month or so of it. And then once I got through the first month and it started to become more habitual with it, I would have people starting to write in, share suggestions. I started to get a social media following from it. So people were rooting, people were cheering along. And I got to have more people giving input with it. I got to, I started to figure out how to do research and find things that I didn't necessarily think I would. You know, and a lot of it was too, is trying to find stuff in my hometown. I, I lived in this beautiful place, but there was so much stuff I found out I'd never had done. I went down to the tourism office and holy smokes, there was pamphlets upon pamphlets of things I had never done. You know, I realized here I call this place home, but I don't even know half of the things that are there that people would come here to experience. And so, you know, there's this concept that coined called becoming a tourist in your own town. And it was such a neat experience, too, because we have all of us have so many amazing things in our backyards that we may not be aware of because we've become conditioned to see our backyards through our our you know, coloring of our lenses. But if you take those off and you put on the lenses of somebody else's perspective, it's extraordinary what you uncover and what you see from that. Absolutely. So, okay. So one thing I was curious about, you, know, you were doing these things and there were some big things as well as some smaller things. How did you make it happen in terms of, you know, time and, and money as well? Because I'm imagining things must have taken you away and, and, t and taken, you know, some, some of it must have cost something. So how did you manage all of that? Yep. With time, I just got really good at managing my schedule. So one thing that was really important was I didn't want this to be like, you're taking a year off of life. I had to work. I had to do all those types of things. If uh, I had, I, so when I was in town, I had a very strict schedule where usually I would do things early in the morning later in the day, or I would adjust my schedule as such. So if I had to do something in the middle of the day, I would. I learned how to get up earlier than I would, and I learned how to stay up later than I normally would too, just to expand my days a little bit more. I also learned and became more aware of how much I had fallen back on sleep from the previous years, so just as a, as a cocoon in a way to try to pass time, and how much of that sleep that I had carried into that year that I really didn't need, but I was just using because it was comfortable. And so that freed up a lot of time to really go after these things. In terms of money, I really made my focus about seeking out and finding things that were, that were low to no cost, especially local stuff or whenever you go to, whenever I travel somewhere, you know, like when, when I would go to England, for example, so much of the stuff that most people want to see, it's really no cost, right? You think of the big things everybody wants to go see, you go see the, you go see the eye, you go see the shard, you go see, you know, London Bridge, you go see Tower Bridge, you go see Buckingham Palace, you see Hyde Park, all those things. There's zero cost in it, right? It's just going there and experiencing it. The things that were really the most expensive were the food stuff, you know, the food things, the cultural type things like that, and the travel. With travel, what I would do is I would often travel on miles, figure out how to travel on miles using credit cards. I was definitely a, an investment I was willing to make in that time because I was really committed to and believed in what could come from it. So I was happy to I was happy to pay I was happy to borrow from myself in the future to allow myself that experience now because I believed in the dividends it would pay later on. And it was also too about I think really being clear on the the experience I wanted to have with it it was it was I didn't want it to be a a unreplicatable experience for other people where if somebody else wanted to do it they couldn't afford it because I think the two biggest objections we have to change are usually time and money, money yeah. and so I wanted to remove those objections and really put those into place and that's not to say that anybody who does it needs to follow my list exactly 
you know, I had some really cool travel experiences during that time that just fortuitously worked out. But it, it, it's really about making it your own experience, making it your own list, making it your own journey. You don't have to do a thousand. You don't have to do a hundred. You can do 20, you can do 50. I had a client who did 50 before 50 a few years ago and it was an awesome experience. <laughs> Brilliant. And so, and out of, uh, before we move on, just out of those thousand things, well, it was more than a thousand. When I looked at the list, it was, it was over a thousand. What was the one thing that stuck in your mind that, that is, was the most important to you out of that, those things that you did? Yeah. Without fail, it was creating international sunrise sunset day. And so to the point of things not costing or unexpected things, as the social media following grew, I have always had this affinity for sunrise and sunsets. And I think part of that came from my dad's passing because I have this very vivid memory of me being a little kid, my dad being outside and it being sunset and this being this brilliant sky and my dad looking up at it and pointing it out and saying how amazing the sky was. But I was so young and in my my ignorance of my youth, I was kind of like, yeah, whatever, let's go do whatever I felt was most important at that time. I didn't appreciate it. But it's funny, that memory still sticks in there. And I really started to find that these sunrises and sunsets, these, I would have these quiet moments of introspection. And I often would feel the closest to Gabe, my dad, and whatnot during it. So we created this event called International Sunrise Sunset Day. And the idea was for people from all over the world to share a photo of the sunrise or sunset wherever they are. And what ended up happening in that very first one is we had hundreds of people from, I think, 33 different countries send in a photo of a sunrise sunset. We've since evolved that event now where we've had, it's an annual event where we've done our sixth or seventh year. We do it every year on September 12th. We've had, gosh, tens of thousands of people from, I think, more than 110 countries. We've had all seven continents, even Antarctica, participate in it. And we've raised collectively over $100,000 towards various charities too with it. So what I have it now is it's this event where you take a photo of the sunrise or sunset in honor of someone you've lost. And then if you feel so compelled, you can make a financial pledge to an organization that you feel your loved one would really be meaningful to them and honor them or, or go and do some sort of good deed or volunteer in some sort of way in honor of the beloved one you've lost and it's a been it's, it's such an extraordinary experience and it's every year we do it it just it, it blows my mind on the 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 stories that come from that that sounds brilliant so september the 12th i shall take part this year um yes please do i will i will okay cool so so you went on that journey you did the thousand things it happened. What ha- what happened after that? Because you you were coaching. I'm imagining you were coaching beforehand. It sounds like you had a vocation mm-hmm. for coaching right from that first relationship breakup. Um, how did you use that experience and you pulling through? Um, did you bring that into your coaching? Was that something you were doing before, or you know what we what did you do after that? Yeah, I think that was really where coaching started to evolve more and more because there's a difference between having conceptual knowledge and experiential knowledge, right? We can all go read all the textbooks. I see you have an amazing bookshelf behind you too. I have, <laughs> I have several like that. And we can read all of those we want and we can, we can intuitively understand it and we can get concepts, but to actually go live and experience it, it's two different things. And I find too that for me, what was really remarkable of it is a what developed from almost like a uh, like a book understanding of humanity evolved into a really human experiential understanding of humanity it wasn't something that was just taking concepts and 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 reading something's description of what this was or what this i had actually gone and lived it and felt it and so when somebody would sit across from me whether it was in person or skype or zoom wasn't around just yet but, you know, whatever the modality was, and somebody was speaking to me and communicating to me about what was going on and what their goals or dreams were, I could feel it because I lived it. I'd experienced it in so many different ways, shapes, and forms. So it wasn't now, there wasn't this barrier between, okay, here, I'm this expert, here's the human, and here's the knowledge, but then there's not this relatability. That barrier had been removed, and now we can really connect. And what happened with that was through that connection, I found that I was a much greater asset and a much stronger teammate to my clients in their journeys because 
because I had, I had lived it in so many different ways. And is that something, so do you specialize in grief or do you coach people on, on sort of any coming through any change? What, what, do, you, what do you focus on? Yeah, you know, the, it's interesting. The grief work has kind of been a, for lack of a better word, it's been a passion project of mine for quite some time. And it's been a mostly behind the scenes. And I, I just recently, I think I shared with you, did a TED Talk on it. Yes. And that was my first kind of foray, foray into in a more public place. Most of the crux of my work has been really about, my core belief is that the two greatest powers that all human beings have are the thoughts we think and the feelings we feel. And I also think that the two greatest adversaries to achieving and experiencing whatever we want in life are the thoughts we think and the feelings we feel. Great irony there, right? (laughs) (laughs) So the crux of my work is really about getting these two amazing forces to work together and helping individuals and organizations overcome their limitations and create success, abundance, fulfillment in their businesses and in their lives. So that that you're sitting wearing a t-shirt with the word zero limits on it. Is that that kind of your, how you help people? You you take away those constraints? Yeah, I think that, you know, our our limitations are really psychologically and emotionally imposed, right? They, They really are. And again, it comes from these two superpowers here. And when we start to really get these two working together and remove barriers, blocks, obstacles, get unstuck, whatever the language we might use is, we find that we really do have zero limits. You know, sure, there might be some sort of physical limitation with gravity. I, if I jump, I might only be able to jump a foot high. I can't quite jump 20 feet high yet. But, you know, with technology evolving, we're going to probably be able to see that in the next 10, 15 years. So the the, the concept of it, of it just being like a a, a – an ideal to strive for is becoming more and more tangible in reality because of what our technology is going to allow us to do, which is why I think it's so imperative for us to get that concept in here and really start embracing it because really whatever we want to experience in life, I mean, we're going to be able to go be tourists in space in the next five years. How crazy is that? We're literally going to be able to go up to go to the airport and say, Oh, where are you going today? Oh no, I'm not going to Spain or anything like that. I'm just going to go to a quick shot up to the moon to take a couple photos. That's going to happen in five years. Listen, less than that. You'd be able you to know? get a sunset sunrise picture yeah. <laughs> from the moon. That would be cool. That will be the new epic one. Right now, the, the Antarctica one is really up there. But I think that when the moonshot one comes in, that's going to eclipse Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. And, and so just talking about your coaching a little bit more. So I, I noticed when I was doing my research on you, that uh, you had a testimonial from from Paul Walker from Fast and Furious film franchise who, who tragically isn't with us anymore. And, and he credited you for helping him achieve the success that he had and becoming the person that he became. How, how did you, did you work with him? How, how did that happen? Yeah, you know, being in Southern California, and the nature of what I do, we, I find myself working with different folks in different industries and, and a few different folks in Hollywood and entertainment. And Paul was one of them. And what started off as a professional relationship evolved into really a best friendship. And at the time of his death, Paul was my closest and dearest friend. Mm-hmm. You know, we had spent in the last however many years together you know, in some way, shape, or form, we'd spent probably <laughs> literally almost every single day together or had communication almost every single day and stuff. And and it, Hollywood's an interesting entity where, you know, on the outside, looking in, we think, wow, these people have it all. We think that, that they got the, the things that we think are most important, right? They got the money, they got the fame, all these people like them. They have the car, the house, whatever it is the looks, the, or the look. And, and so many of us, so we think that, that they, their life should just be so great. And so with, when we experience these human beings, we don't experience them necessarily as a human being like you and I, mm-hmm. but we look at them as the characters or how we perceive them to be on, on TV, movies, whatever that is, right? We see them as that, that how we personify them in our own minds and hearts. Well, for people in that industry, I think that they can struggle sometimes with that because they're still human beings too. Mm. You know, they're still human beings that are having human experiences just like you and I are. They struggle. They struggle with image. They struggle with being enough, being loved. They struggle with probably even more than most do about 
you know, are the people that are in their lives really in their lives because they really care about the individual or do they just care about what the individual represents or what that individual could potentially do for them? And I know a lot of people who I've spoken with or worked with in the entertainment industry, that's been a big challenge for them with that. You know, they, they live in a world where there's a profession called critic, critic, where literally that person gets paid money to go and bash and find fault in what the work they do. Now we call it, we might call it bullying or being cruel or rude, but they live in a rural world where that's actually expected that this person can go on there and literally just say they suck. They were awful. They're all these types of things. It's kind of interesting that they have the same behavior, but because they wear a different hat and they get paid for it, it's not called the same type of thing. Right. Mm. And I think it's such a great gift to be able to work with people like that because they have these amazing platforms where they can do so much good. And one of the things that Paul did with his platform before he passed away that is still doing so much extraordinary good in the world today is finding his, founding his nonprofit organization called Reach Out Worldwide, which is a, a disaster relief organization that goes to, I, I think it's been in, gosh, six, seven different countries now. And whenever there's a natural disaster that happens, they send over essentially kind of a first responder type group of people just to go help just to go help. We went, we did the first one into Haiti after the earthquake in 2010 and then went to Chile after that. And we're in Alabama in the United States. Uh, and it's, it had been a Paul's dream ever since the, the tsunami hit Sri Lanka back in maybe 2005, I think it was. And he felt, he just felt this tremendous responsibility that he should have been there, that he should have done something. He had, he had the resources to do it. He was able body and he just didn't know how. And, and, one of the things that we really came to realization for him is his bigger purpose was to do something like that. And so it's, it's so neat to see that organization still carrying on because it just shows that what all of us can do if we put action behind our dreams. And I think what some of the people who have these platforms, they have such an extraordinary ability to do and I think some of them really it's on their hearts that they want to do it, but they're not quite sure how, because they, like all of us, they have their own stuff, yeah. but it's magnified. And not only that, but is there really a safe space for them to open up and be vulnerable and work through it through? Not so much because if it gets, if it gets into the hands of the wrong person, they take that, put it on Twitter, put it on every single social media post, rip the context right out of it. And then what message is that sent back to that person? But I'm not going to risk that. Mm. I'm not going to risk that because they lose roles. They lose, I mean, they can lose everything like that by just being vulnerable. So I think it's, it's, it's a really extraordinary thing to be able to work with those individuals because they have such a capacity to create, create tidal waves of change in certain, in certain sectors of the world. I didn't, I didn't know about that organization he set up. So that's, that's really cool. That's very inspirational. And so talking about inspirational, I uh, came to know you, um, we did a, a bit of work together and I heard your, t I saw your Ted talk and that inspired me. And so I want to talk about, you know, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to your Ted talk because I think people should go and see it. And, you know, we've covered a little bit of stuff today, but I think the talk and, and that journey is a powerful one for people to, to watch. So you've been transitioning into speaking, I think. Mm -hmm. Why, why is that a big thing for you? Why are you doing that? Yeah, I think that, you know, coming full circle about the stories, right, and stories in humanity, it's, it's funny that this is really, you know, I think there's almost in full circle moments if we see them. Uh, what is it? Public speaking is the number one or number two biggest fear shared across humanity. And it's also the thing, I think, that gives us the greatest platform to really connect and make change and inspiration and, and, and help people. My, my mission, my greater mission in life is to positively impact the lives of 2 billion with a B people in my lifetime. And for me to do that, I need to have a voice. I need to be able to communicate to a lot more than one person at a time because the math just doesn't work out unless I can figure out how to live to 10,000 or something like that. <laughs> Which I'm not saying that's out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> just saying that. You I'm like a big guy, Jesse. Yeah, <laughs> I'd rather play the odds. And, <laughs> and, you know, to really do that, 
you, you have to be able to, you have to be able to speak, you have to be able to share. And, and such the crux of what speaking is, is it's really about sharing stories. You, I, was, I was giving somebody feedback the other day with who I was coaching on speaking. And they were talking about, well, you know, I just felt like I was, I was quite, the language wasn't right. And I said, you know, we have, standing up on a stage and just using clever word plays, that's not speaking, that's called, we call those people politicians. I said, real speaking, real communicating is getting up there and being emotional, being vulnerable, holding the space, you know, seeing that person in there, or even maybe doing an interview like this where you and I are talking one-on-one, but we're speaking and there's people listening right now and hopefully they're emotionally connected to us, with us, because we show how we show up to this. That's, that's, that's communicating, that's connecting, that's speaking, and that's the real magic of it. And I think that... Uh, it's something that if all of us looked to find our voice and really channel that towards something that is meaningful to us, my gosh, this, we, we would transform. We would transform our cultures. We transform our neighborhoods. We transform our communities. Like forget trying to change the whole world. Just think about how you would change your world. You know, the world around you. If we all just took those things that are on our heart and started putting it out there for other people to find us. International Sunrise Sunset Day has become as big as it is, not because of me, but because I shared a story that other people resonated with. You know, the TED Talk, my goal at the TED Talk is to get that message in front of a million people this year, not because I think that I'm some great speaker or anything like that, but because I believe so strongly in the message and the feedback I've received from it so far about people needing to find that guiding light out of the dark, wanting to find that North Star to lead them on a path of healing. And because there's a, there's a story in there, there's messages in there that are human to human that people who are going through those struggles can really latch on to and use as that anchor to pull them out of the water. And it's, it's, it's such a great gift to be able to share that, to be able to, to use your voice in a way to, to communicate that with others. I love that analogy of, of the light, you know, in terms of, you know, being able to find a way out because it's almost like, it's almost like the Roger, Roger Bannister thing for, for when you're in that hole and, and you know, that how he broke the four minute mile and then, and then other people were able to yeah. break the four minute mile, knowing your story and seeing the possibilities um, for your life and, uh, you know, and being able to pull yourself out of that is inspirational and, and just means that it's even possible for people in the, in the darkest place that they find themselves after grief to get out yes. of there. Absolutely. Really powerful. And, and how do you, you know, I, I've seen, you know, you on, on different stages, how do you put your talks together? I know we've talked about stories. I'm a massive, you know, stories is my, my bag. I love stories. They're so powerful. How do you, what's your process for putting your talks together and how do you make sure that they are, you know, aside, you know, using stories is one thing to, to keep them engaging and relevant for people. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, well, I don't, I shouldn't speak for everybody. For me, when I first started out, I did the overly anal, oh my God, I got to memorize every single piece of this. <laughs> that what if I screw up? What if I forget this approach? And then I started distilling down to more bullet points and really trying to be more focused on connecting and coming from a place of more story. My, my two words I used for this year to really be kind of my, my words to live this year by are authenticity and impact. I realized that at a point when I started to get, I started to get more involved in it, that I was almost taking me out of it and trying to follow formulas that other people were laying out that said, this is how you have to do it. And really it's, it's for me now, it's trying to come up and be authentic as possible from stage. You know, it's, it's trying to not think so much about exactly what I want to say. That's important. But what's more important to me now focusing on is just connecting with people. You're really connecting with people. And that's been a challenge because I've always gone into this wanting to be the absolute best I could be at it. And so early on, I defined the best as being the most succinct, the most precise, the, the best use of words, no stutters, no stammers, no ums or uhs or any of those types of things. And trying to let go of that almost militant kind of approach to it has been a challenge to make way for authenticity and vulnerability in it. But in doing so, I find that it's really just, it's opened up a, a, a platform of connection with people 
that wouldn't necessarily have existed to the depth it has. And I'll give you a quick example of it. I was invited to speak at a, there's in, in Santa Barbara where I live, they have this organization called the Estate Planning Council. And it's basically a group of attorneys, financial planners, accountants, those types of folks. And they wanted me to come in and talk about some communication, different communication strategies and a couple other things. Now, on the outside, we speak two different languages, right? They speak numbers, I speak emotions. They speak right laws and legalities, and I speak psychology and, and feelings and, and whatnot. And so the match doesn't quite seem to sense. And to get a group like that to come over or, and vice versa and meet in the middle where we can communicate in the same language can be a challenge. So having that as a place of just recognizing it and allowing myself to be vulnerable enough to that and to make that connection, what was amazing is all of a sudden you have this moment in the presentation where there's myself and there's probably 80 people in the audience. You see the titles, the suits, everything melt away, and you just see all the human beings there. Cool. You know, you see little boys and little girls who have their stuff, right? And then all of a sudden now it's not, you know, me over here speaking Greek and them over here hearing Chinese. It's all human beings together trying to work towards common causes, common goals, common goods. And gosh, that's just, it's, it's one of the most amazing things to be able to have and just to be able to help facilitate an experience like that. And then for them to take that and be able to use it to help the people that they're going to help in their, their professions. So, so for you, in terms of your talk these days, it's about getting the message and the meaning of the message across in a way that is authentic because i i agree with you i'm i think you know when you script something to death when you speak from learned memory you lose that connection you lose that natural sound and movement and everything else and you become sort of fixated on 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 sort of reading back the words rather than focusing on being present and connection so that have you found it you know because you strike me as a bit of a perfectionist in some senses um, letting go of that perfection, um, it must be, must be quite a challenge, like you said. So you, you literally just, how do you do it? Do you have like a, an overarching message and you said, that's what I'm aiming for and I'm going to trust the words will come or do you have perhaps a looser structure? Do you still have the bullet points? Yeah, I, in, I, I keep bullet points. I definitely keep bullet points. I think it's, I definitely, because here's on the other extreme, I can have a really bad habit of showing up and just shooting from the hip. And <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily, <laughs> it's not necessarily neither bad nor good. That's not necessarily what every audience wants. And if I'm, if I'm really going to be serving, I want to have some specific points I want to make sure. So I think bullet points are really important. I think it's, it's I think, and for me, if I'm really honest with it, the shooting from the hip thing is one of those things that I feel like I'm a, a talented enough speaker that I can pull it off but I'm doing it because I'm too lazy to take the time to prepare. And that's, and I hate to admit it, but that's the truth, right? So I think it's really important to have bullet points, to have a, a core message that you want to dial in, you know, have some key points with that. I, I, I use PowerPoints with, with some formal presentations to, to aid to a narrative. But what's happened is, is where my PowerPoints used to be these, big paragraphs of content, <laughs> stuff like that. you know, I'm allowing there to be, you know, more pictures and more just word, one word things. And, and that's a, that's a fear voice, right? Letting go of that because I would keep the words up there. Cause I would think, God, this is so important. This is so good. I don't want to not say this. And now just releasing that and having to trust it's going to come up. And then if it doesn't being okay with that versus going away saying, oh, you idiot, you just, you forgot the best line that you had come up with, you know, because we all have those lines that we come up with, right? Where we think, oh God, this is gold. I got to share this. I can't wait to hear for somebody to hear it. Yeah. And it's not so much we're excited to share it as we're, we're excited for someone to hear it so that they can tell us how cool of a line that was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's about us being a vehicle for the message yeah. and not making it about ourselves again. This is the other thing. It's not about, as you rightly just said, it's not about you. It's about you being the vehicle for the message to land and stick. That's what yes. it's about. So true. Excellent. So, so true. Thank you very much for sharing that. Now, before I let you go, before we talk about how people can work with you and find you and get you to speak and all that good stuff, um, I've got a few standard questions. Um, I guess I think I might know the answer to this, but what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? The best thing speaking has done for me 
gosh, it's, it's, it's connection. You know, it really, really is connection. It's, it's something that I will, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now just even thinking about it. I will never, ever, Sarah, get tired or it will never grow old. That connection that you can have with another human being, that unmistakable energy that you feel with people when they're, when you and them are on the same platform and the same wavelength and that they are, they are going through a journey they're walking through an experience in their life that they're going through some sort of inner transformation and that you've been given the gift of being the guide at that time. It's, it's, it's indescribable. It really, really is. It's, it's, it's the greatest, it's my greatest joy. It's the greatest gift I've ever been gifted. It's yeah, it's connection for sure. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And then, Let's, let's ask you this question. The worst, have you got a worst gig? Like, is there a speaking experience that sticks in your mind that go, oh no, I just, that was awful. Yeah, God, I know exactly what it is too. <laughs> Are you happy to share? Yeah, I'm happy to share. I'm a little ashamed, but this is part of that being authentic, authentic piece, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> going back to the shooting from the hip thing, I had you know, probably four, five years ago, I had been feeling, I had done a couple different speaking gigs, these different venues, and they were at the different local high schools. And they had gone really well. And, uh, you know, I realized that doing them, that the students didn't really care about PowerPoints and all those types of things. So it felt like it took all this pressure off of me. And I could just show up and shoot from the hip, be lazy. I had some friends in town, and I went out and had more than one too many drinks with them the night before. (laughs) which I have a rule, <laughs> I had a rule, and it became cemented after this point about no alcohol whatsoever, 48 hours leading up to a, a significant speaking experience. And I, it was an early morning one. I am an early riser, but I woke up and I was slower than normal. I was hungover. I was running late to get there, got there, couldn't find parking, the whole thing. And I had two back-to-back groups with this audience and each group was probably about 100 150 people the first one was god awful it was absolutely horrendous i was up there just singing geez if i was in that audience i would walk out right now this is so absolute piss poor (laughs) i am and i was i felt i was so ashamed of myself i was so ashamed so disappointed with myself and I, I was, I was angry at myself, all those types of things. And it was, I, I'm also so grateful for that experience because, you know, we all fall down. It's how we get back up. I had about 15 minute intermission between the next one. And I sat there and paced for 15 minutes and said, you are not going to be like that. You're going to show up. You're going to serve. You are going to blah, blah, blah. Just really talking to myself. Like you have to let that go. And the second one was much, much better than the first one. But yeah, that was that was by far and away the worst one ever. <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's no failure. There's only feedback, isn't there? So, so yeah, there's no yeah. more peers before talking. Yeah. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> cool. Okay, uh, just a few more. Just so, um, what is the the book that has had most impact on your life and why? Yeah, the monk who sold his Ferrari by Robin. The, the monk, the monk who sold his Ferrari. Oh. by Robin Sharma and it's a simple little book and it was a book that the reason it had most impact was it was after I finished university I had been so burnt out on reading I loved reading as a kid I hated reading because of school I, you know I just felt like we were getting all this crap crammed down us that I didn't really resonate with any of it and so the joy of reading was gone it was the first book I picked up after university and it was the first book that I, and I remember reading it, not even being able to put it down, just going, wow, wow, this is amazing. Gosh, this is so true. Wow, this is incredible that this is possible. I have this vivid memory of sitting in my car, parking in some park just because I wanted to read a few more pages. And I'd never done that before. And how much joy I felt reading that. And it was just, it was absolutely transformative for me. And it really got me on the path of, wait, maybe life can be different than it's been. Cool. And it's a, the monk who sold his Ferrari by Robin Sharma. Sharma. I'll yep. put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. What's the best piece of business advice you've had and why? Gosh, the best piece of business advice, get a mentor. Okay. 100% get a mentor. I, I have spent so much time 
and made things so much harder on myself by not asking for help, not seeking out guidance, not trying to go solo, trying to do it alone. You know, it was just, I got into this very ego driven thing that, okay, if people aren't going to jump on board, then I'll just do it my way and blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, just getting, getting mentors, getting other people around, you know, things like this. You know, I, I, Sarah and I met each other because we did a little bit of work together because I reached out to her for help because in doing something that years ago, I would have just sat there and said, okay, well the hell with it. I'm going to do it all on my own. And then I come across Sarah, who's absolutely brilliant at it. She gets this thing back to me in, a, in like a matter of hours. I'm looking at it going, holy hell, that would have taken me <laughs> six months to come even close to something like that. And, you know, but that's, that's the thing is like, I just would never have done that before. You open myself up to asking for and receiving help. So getting a, getting a mentor, a coach, and then getting, allowing yourself to be, get help and support from other people to connect with, again, that connection word, C word with other human beings. It makes the just journey so much more fulfilling and, and, and so much more gratifying. And it takes away a hell of a lot of stress and anxiety with it too. I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that I heard not so long ago, which is a big thing, is, is sometimes you've got to ask who rather than how. And finding the right who rather than struggling with the how yourself yes. is, yeah, absolutely. Really Love that. Okay, last question, then I'm going to let you go. Um, if you could choose one mentor, like following on from that, um, and they can be fictional or non-fictional, uh, alive or dead, who would you choose and why? That one... I just had, because you offered the fictional or non-fictional library, did my, my, my response completely has changed. So first it was going to be Robin Sharma, but as soon as you gave me the choice, it completely changed. And I know exactly with 100% certainty who would be to be King Arthur. Ah. Ever since I was a little kid, I don't know why, I don't know how, but I have been extremely drawn, connected to the Arthurian tales, Arthurian legends. I will sometimes, which I actually did this last night, when I'm laying down, if I'm watching a show or anything, I have an Excalibur sword that I keep next to me just because it makes me feel connected to something. I was watching the TV series Merlin last <laughs> night. It is, it's, and what it is is just the idea of this, this magical Camelot where everyone sat around the round table as equals. There wasn't a head of the table. There was no one whose place was more important that during these times that there could be a place where people were fighting for like ideals that we could all have and share and that there is, I don't know, it's just something about it. And I, I really think Camelot is a metaphor for our, our, our own lives, our communities, all those things that we can all build our own Camelots. And it, and obviously Arthur faced enormous opposition, but he, he, he stood true to ideals and beliefs that he had. And it made him probably, probably really in many ways, the most legendary and recognized and celebrated ruler of all time and it's debatable if he even existed but yet here we are telling stories and you know we say someone like king arthur if you know the name we smile right if we said someone else like who, who would be another leader in the past we probably wouldn't necessarily it's a 50 50 hit if we smile so yeah we would 100 percent be king arthur Oh, I love that. You are my first guest that's ever chosen a fictional person. And I deliberately ask that every time because there's so many that I probably would choose as well. Thank you so much. And I, I would just say in terms of, I love that the round table, the Camelot, modern day masterminds can be just like that, actually. If you yes. get a mastermind group uh, together, that, you know, that rising tide lifts all ships as well. That that's That's the sort of round table version of, uh, of that. Thank you so much, Jesse. I, I knew from the moment that I saw you doing that Ted talk that, that you, I know there's something about you. There's a warmth, there's a, a light and, and, and inspirational uh, vibe that comes through you. And I knew that I wanted to get you on the show and I'm so glad that our paths crossed. And um, if people want to work with you either to get uh, coaching or to have you come and speak or to get involved in, in the sunset, uh, sunrise um, day, anything. How, what's the best place for them to go to connect with you? Yeah, you can you can find me on websites jessebrisen9.com, social media it's all jessebrisen9, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all those things. I'm on all of them, and I, I will I will answer your messages and whatnot too. So don't hesitate to reach out. I just forgot I have sword in the stone, little sword in the stone figurine sitting right here on my desk too. <laughs> 
Perfect. I shall forever think of you when I hear King Arthur's name come up in the future. <laughs> Good. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for sharing so openly, for showing vulnerability and, and the words of, uh, of wisdom um, that you shared with, with us today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. And thank you so much for what you do. You're welcome. I know I often say this, and I guess I must be lucky to get to do so, but Jesse is one of the most kind and authentic people I've met. And I personally got some amazing insights, and I hope you did too. Please visit Jesse's website and check out more about what he does and the challenge he completed. It's such a lot. It's really fascinating to look at the stuff that he did. Also, don't forget to go and get your free copy of my book, Straight to the Top, How to Create and Deliver a Killer Elevator Pitch. And that comes with some fantastic bonuses at www.standoutpitch.com. That's standoutpitch.com. Okay, thanks again for listening. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, as usual, I'm asking you to take a couple of minutes to review and rate the show on iTunes or wherever else you're listening. I promise you it'll take just a couple of minutes, but it really makes a difference and I really appreciate it. Anyway, that's me done for another show. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and have a cracking rest of the week. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Speaking Club podcast at www.saraharchard.co.uk.